And I started making a gift each year for Kurt and for my boys. So one year, I had been giving a lot of thought to this concept of blessings being given in the Bible and how names a lot of times had to do with blessings. And so I decided that I was going to combine those ideas and make um, name meaning pictures for them for Christmas that year. So I put their full name, I looked up the meaning of their name, and I put that, and then I chose a verse that described who they were becoming in Christ, who I saw them becoming in Christ. And so I wanted to give them a vision for who they could be and who they were in Christ. So for instance, our son Cale, some of you may not know, his name is actually Caleb, means wholehearted. And so my blessing on him was that he would become a man who loves, lives, and serves God with his whole heart. I used a scripture that already held special meaning to him, and that was John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is how he would stay wholehearted in his devotion to God, by staying connected to the vine. And so I used the meanings of their names to bless them, and that was my gift to them. Names were used in the Bible, interestingly enough, both to bless and to curse. We find that God places a high priority on names. In Genesis, we see that he names the light day, and he names the darkness night. He calls the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. He brought the animals to Adam so that he could give them names. And there are many men and women in the Bible whose names were actually chosen by God, and the meanings of their name carried special significance. Sometimes we see him changing people's names to signify who they would become or to signify the fulfillment of a promise. For example, Eve means life giver because Eve would be the one to give life. Abraham was changed from Abram to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude, to signify the promise made to Abraham by God to make his descendants as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus give Simon the name Peter, which means rock. And I can't imagine what an encouragement it was to Peter when he denied Christ to remember that Christ had named him Rock, um, to remember that his denial of Christ was not the final word. In addition to the names of many characters in the Bible, God gave himself names. When God commanded Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Jesus, out of Egypt, Moses asked, "Who should I say sent me?" And God answered, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. God refers to himself by many different names in the Bible. And with each name, we learn more about him. His names are like miniature portraits and promises. Each of the names of God describes a different aspect of his many-faceted character. So to get us thinking about who God is and what his names are, I'm going to show you just a short video that has quite a few of the names of God that are in the Bible.
So those are just a few of the names of God. There are a whole bunch in the Bible. In addition to God giving himself names that we see, we also see that people who knew God gave him names that more fully described him. As I mentioned last week when we were talking about God being available and we were looking at the Psalms, one of the things that I love about the Bible is how we get to see how specific people related to God in a personal way. And I think that we tend to describe or identify or think of God in very general, narrow terms. The name of God or Lord conveys little more to us than just the designation that he's the supreme being. It doesn't say a whole lot to us about God's character or his ways and what God means to us. But through the Bible, we get to see how people with a relationship with him described him and who they thought him to be. We get to see a broader view of who God is and not just our narrow view. One of the things I was thinking about when I was thinking um, through the names of God and why it's important to know these is how that it's almost impossible for us to experience God, every aspect of God that we see in the Bible. And maybe it's that um, we haven't experienced that aspect of him yet, but we know we can because someone else did. And the names of God convey that to us. So I was thinking specifically about how that when Austin had cancer, we experienced God in ways that we never would have had he not, had we not gone through that. But I don't want everybody to have to experience somebody they love having cancer to know God in that way. And so maybe with me sharing who God was to me during that time, they can say, oh yeah, God can be that to me in this time. 
And so we get to see God more completely in the way that other people experience him. So I just chose two names this morning. Um, And as we talk about these two names for God, I want you to ask yourself the question, what does this name of God reveal about his nature, character, attributes, attitudes? What does it reveal about his heart? So the first one is in Genesis 16, and we're going to read verses 1 through 16. God has promised Abram an heir, but many years have gone by, and no heir or son has been born. And this is where Genesis 16 picks up. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So one of the things you need to know here at this particular point is that any children that were born through Sarah's slave would have been considered Sarah's children. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years... Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Hagar mistre- then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. So do whatever you think best, and what you think best is to mistreat her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will become too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lehai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So what does the name, the God who sees me, reveal about God? His nature, his character, his attitudes, his attributes, his heart. Hagar was an unlikely person to be seen by God. She was a woman, she was a runaway slave, and she was pregnant. In her life, things had seemed to look up for a brief moment. Her lowly status as a servant had changed when Abram, according to the custom of that day, had taken her to produce a child on behalf of Sarai. 
But when Hagar became pregnant, she communicated an air of superiority towards Sarai, who then mistreated her. Finally, things got so bad that Hagar took off in the direction of her homeland out through the desert. It was a dangerous thing for a woman to do. See, she could have been abused. She could have been taken captive by nomadic traders. She could have lost her baby from the rigors of traveling in that rugged terrain. Having to escape probably in the middle of the night, she had very little supplies with her. But somehow she made it to this spring of water in the desert and sat down exhausted. She had to have wondered if God knew or cared about her situation. No doubt she was confused. What could a pregnant single woman do even if she reached her homeland? See, if she had reached her family, they would have been too poor to help her. Her future was uncertain. Her past was too painful to think about. She felt abandoned by everyone on earth and forgotten by God in heaven. Have you ever felt abandoned or forgotten by God? But see, the name, the God who sees me, tells us she was not forgotten by God. He saw her. What a beautiful picture that gives us of our compassionate God. A God who is concerned even for this poor, confused servant girl. The angel tells her what to do, and then he promises to multiply her descendants. Hagar, encouraged and awed by this experience, gives a new name to God. El Roy, the God who sees. She then returns to Abram and Sarai, and Ishmael is born. See, God is a seeking God. Hagar didn't find God. God found Hagar, and God found you. You may think that you found him, but the reality is he found you. You were lost and confused and wandering away from him, and he came looking for you and found you. The good news here is that no one, not even a lowly Egyptian servant girl, is too lost for God to find. And because God sees us, we're able to see God. God saw Hagar in her trouble, and Hagar saw God's mercy and was able to submit to him. God saw Hagar and the trouble she was in, and God knew that her number one need was to submit and obey him. She couldn't learn that by running away. But when she submitted to him, he blessed her. The same is true for us. Our number one need is to submit to God and obey him. But we think we know what's best. We want to try and fix it ourselves, like Sarah did, and look how that worked out. Or we want to run away from it, like Hagar did. But God sees us, and because he does, we can see his mercy and submit to him. See, God sees us when we struggle to maintain a healthy work schedule despite numerous pressures. When we submit our 50th application trying to find a job, God sees. When we drive an hour plus in traffic for small group, God sees. When our closest friends move away, 
and we choose to make new friends, God sees. When we feel like Hagar and are tempted to flee our circumstances, God sees. When we're lonely, God sees. When we're abused, God sees. When we do the right thing even though everyone else is against us, God sees. When we fight yet another day of depression and anxiety, God sees. When our spouse, friend, roommate wrongs us and we love and forgive yet again, God sees. There is no place God can't see. There is no situation he cannot discern. He sees it all. He is El Roy, the God who sees. The second name God is given um, is in Exodus 17, 8 through 16. And I don't mean second like in the order it's in in the Bible. I mean like the one I'm going to share with you today. (laughs) Exodus 17, 8 through 16. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. I have always, from a young age, loved the Olympics. I cannot wait for them to start every time it's time for them to happen. And it used to be every four years, and it would be like the longest four years from the end of one to the start of the next. But they always open with this really beautiful procession of athletes from all of the participating countries And they're marching around the field with their banner or their flag. Their flag is their identification with the country that's sponsoring them in the games. And it's a rallying point for the athletes and the fans alike. And as they go by, each one with their flag, great cheers come up from the citizens of that country when they come by marching behind their flag. We rally around the United States flag on July the 4th to celebrate freedom. We wave flags. We bake flag cakes. We display flags. We wear flag t-shirts. And we sing a song about our flag, the Star Spangled Banner. The most important thing flags or banners do, however, is to mark victory. It is well understood that the conquering army in any battle has the right to remove the defeated country's flag and replace it with their own usually in the highest spot possible so everybody can see it. The country, with, the country with the conquering flag has won 
and now they're in control, and that's what the banner and the flag represent. The name Moses gave to God, the Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nisi, is found only once in the Bible, but the truth it expresses is found all throughout the scripture. In ancient times, a banner was a standard that was carried at the head of a military unit. It was often made out of wood or metal or shaped into various figures or emblems that could be attached to a staff or to a long pole. A banner symbolizing the ideas of those who marched under it indicated a rallying point for troops before and during battle. Banners were also symbols of safety and protection. Those who belonged to an army stood under their banner for security. A banner, which often included a bright, shiny ornament, was something that could be seen from afar as it glittered in the sun. And it encouraged the morale of the people who fought under it. See, no matter how far they were from the banner, the sun would reflect off of the metal, and they would see that and be reminded of what they were rallying around. When the battle of, uh, was over, the banner would also serve as a symbol of success and victory. It would become a sign of deliverance and salvation. Marching under, under a banner aroused devotion to a nation or to a cause or to a leader. This battle with the Amalekites we just read about was all about God. Joshua, Moses, Aaron, Hur, the Israelite army were simply people God used. But the battle itself was orchestrated by God. Moses knew this and he wanted to make sure the Israelites knew it and remembered it. Nothing that he or they did brought about the victory. God's presence and power took them into the battle and assured the victory when the battle was done. See, the Lord is our banner is declaring that God is the standard, that he is the rallying point, that he is the cause and the banner of victory and protection, that his people are to trust and to rally around. The banner also symbolizes deliverance and salvation in the midst of battle. God is our banner. He is our safety and protection. He is our security. He encourages us. He's the one who gives us success and victory. He delivers us and he saves us and we are devoted to him. So one of the things that I think is really important about that is what I said when I said he is the God who sees me, that when we are abused, he sees. I think what we have to remember is that God already has the victory. He's already won the victory. And so our question is not, am I going to have victory over this? The only question we have is, am I going to have victory in this life? Or am I going to have victory in the next life? Is it going to come now? Or is it going to come later? Because it is going to come. God has already assured that. In Philippians 1.21, Paul said, To live is Christ, and to die is gain. See, either way, it's a win-win. In 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul charges Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. In 1 Corinthians 15.57, it says, But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, for us, Christ is our banner of victory. 
Yahweh Nisi brings complete freedom to a person's heart because this is the ultimate goal of the goodness of God. God is our banner because only he can set people free and only he can bring victory. And the whole world will know that when we lift up Christ as our banner. So what banner do you raise up or depend on in life? How have you been tempted to depend on the banner of self or money or position or control instead of God? Do you look to the Lord God for deliverance or do you look to your own strength, knowledge, and experience? What does the name the Lord is our banner reveal about God, his nature, his character, his attributes, his attitudes, his heart? It reveals that he is a personal, loving God who fights our battles for us. Peace and rest are brought to our soul knowing that God is on our side and we're not alone. It tells us he's powerful and mighty and victorious. How comforting it is to know that our God never fails and never abandons us when times get tough, but that he's our champion and he's our defender. He is able. God is our banner tells us he is able, but it also tells us he is willing. He is in control. He is Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is our banner. In John 14, 9, Jesus says, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And Hebrews 1, 3 tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of God. So if we know Jesus, we know God. The video I'm going to show you now is an old one. Most of you have probably seen it. But it is a good example of who Jesus is and what his names are. And how we see God through who, how we see God through Jesus, and so it never gets old. I love this video, so I'm going to share that with you right now. Thank you. 
Yeah, so that's our king. You know, when he says that, I don't have any doubt in my mind that he believes it. He says it very firmly and very strongly. He's not timid about who my king is. He knows who his king is. And one of the questions that we've said we want to focus on in this series on who God is, is how does this change how I relate to God in my daily life? So in this particular thing, how does knowing the names of God change how I experience him in my daily life? And I think we've answered that to a certain extent on some of the things we've talked about this morning. But I think one of the most important ways it changes how we relate to God is in this question that Dr. Lockridge asks over and over again in that video is, do you know him? That's my king. Do you know him? See, we've seen God described in various ways through the names that we looked at this morning. And there are many others in the Bible. Many books have been written about who he is and what he is. But that doesn't really matter if you don't know who God is to you. As you experience him, what names would you give him? If there's anything the names of God should show us, it's that he's a personal God. And that we should each have names for him. We should see his activity in our lives. And if we don't, there's something wrong. We need to know who our God is and how he is evident in our lives. So we're going to take a few minutes to share about this. I want you to get in groups of four, no more than five. And I want you to take just a couple of minutes as soon as you get in your group of just quiet time. And I just want you to think about that question, what name would I give God? And then I want you to take some time and share that in your small group. You can be creative, or you can use the same type format that we saw in the names that we looked at today. And I'll give you an example, and before you start, so you'll kind of know the direction I want you to go here. So if I were going to name God from something that he's done in my life or revealed about himself to me recently, it would be that he is the God who is enough. And so as, I, as my boys have moved out of the house, as I have moved away from the people that I'm the closest to, just friend-wise and such, um, as my dad passed away, as Kurt's been gone a lot because he's commuting so much to school and he stays down there sometimes, I haven't found myself alone as much as I have in the last two years. But what God has repeatedly revealed to me is that he is enough. And so if I were to name God, I would say he is the God who is enough. That's the kind of thing I want you to think through. And that's the kind of thing I want you to share with your group, is what name would you give him and why? It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be long. As a matter of fact, we don't really have time for long. Um, So when your time is up, we're going to sing a song together. That's how you'll know that we're getting ready to, you need to finish up and and get back with the group. And we're going to sing a song, and then we're going to take communion together. So go ahead and break up into groups. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. 
We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.